Welcome to the Chasing Passion Podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. This week's guest is Keith Gore. Keith is currently working as a head of reward, pensions and employee relations within a major bank. Within the bank, he's responsible for the bank's reward function, its 15 occupational group pension schemes and all employee relations within the unions. Keith has received a first-class honours master's in investment treasury and banking from DCU. Keith has also served in the IAPF Council for eight years and is currently a member of the EPF Irish Advisory Group. Keith is also a lecturer in corporate finance for DCU's master's in investment treasury and banking. In this episode, some of the things we discuss are Keith's most worthwhile investment, his biggest lessons that he learned throughout his career, and what his decision process actually looks like. And without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Keith, thanks for coming to the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. <laughs> Great to be here. So I always like to ask this question to the first guests. And what is your background and how did you actually get involved with the work that you currently do? Well, my background is that uh, I left school when I was 16, uh, having completed the Leaving Cert. I did get a place in college. Um, didn't go because um, I'd never been on a bus into town by myself before so uh, decided to repeat the leave insert and go to college when I was 17 um, but didn't didn't necessarily have uh, college funding in place mm. so I got a job as a bus conductor and I worked almost full time as a bus conductor in order that I could study full time and I sort of did both for a couple of years. And uh, what I realized afterwards was I was working so that I could study. But career-wise, it was the working as the bus conductor in which I learned more lessons and actually mm. helped me greater in my career than actually going to college. So then I was lucky to join probably one of the best um uh, companies in Ireland which is Aer Lingus and I joined Aer Lingus in 1989 when I was 19 years of age as a flight steward I went onto the planes and a great a great uh, thing to have in anybody's work life because um, being frontline I think is always important mm. because no matter what you're doing you're making decisions later on in your career about customers having that knowledge of what it's like one-on-one with customers in all sorts of situations good and bad uh, is a great experience to have and i did that for a couple of years so now you're picking up a pattern of every couple of years a change Mm. happens and so i moved into finance and i gave up what was a great job now as a flight steward especially back in the late 80s and only (laughs) 19 years of age flying around the place with a briefcase with nothing in it other than a manual and spare short and went into the, the less exciting world of the finance department in Aer Lingus and spent a few years there. And the thing about the airline business is it goes through cycles and yeah. you have to accept that if you're going to work in the airline business. The, the, it can be great times and then it can be bad times. And the... The, the, there was a few years there after the Gulf War where the, you know, there weren't opportunities really for, for people in the airline industry. And so I, my career stagnated in line with everybody else's. But I kept studying at night. 
So I was building up a range of things that I'd now covered all sort of in the business area. And then when things came good, uh, I got a number of rapid promotions. I got promoted, I think, five times in five years. Wow. So, yeah. Once a year. (laughs) Yeah. So I just sort of raced through and I took the opportunities as they came. The other thing that happens is that if you... If you're young, enthusiastic, and hopefully capable, you tend to be given the really crappy projects to do. And if you do a crappy project and you do it well, the next time a crappy project comes around, well, guess what? They don't consider that you've served your time. You get the next crappy project. Mm. And I got amalgamation of department projects. I got Y2K projects, Euro conversion projects. These are all projects that happened before you were born. And all in my late 20s and I ended up with a fairly large team of people who were you know much older than me and and it was a feature of my career for many years that I was managing large teams of people who were all way older than mm. me and that if you if you're willing to listen and learn you can learn an awful lot from people like that then when I was 32 I was asked to become the group pensions manager for Linkus and manage the third largest pension scheme in the in the country and then at 33, I was also given the Erlingus ESOP, which was the second largest share scheme in the country. Mm. And I was 32, 33 years of age. Some of the people who worked for me were 30 years in that department. So, um, th- again, it went very well. And I spent five years doing that job. We went through the IPO, and I was involved in the, the IPO and the um, subsequent attempt to take over by Ryanair. And I was in the middle of all of that. And then I got an offer from one of the banks to, to come and join them. And it was a bit like somebody playing for uh, sort of the mid-league team and, and scoring well and then getting an offer to join Chelsea or Man United or Man City. Mm. Um, so I had to go. And I went. And the timing you might say was really bad because I went in 2007 and by 2008 we were in trouble. Yeah. But I, I don't see it that way. <laughs> um, again, found myself in the middle of a crisis um, and that produced massive opportunities for me. So I had to find all sorts of solutions to all sorts of problems. Um, you know, I had to um, make major decisions that affected lots of people and had to work out how to explain them to people, which I mm. did. And I went around the country explaining all these changes to all these people to get buy-in for them. It worked out really well. Stayed for a number of years, and then my boss retired. I placed him, and I found myself at a reasonably responsible level within the bank. And then recently, we had more trouble, and um, a number of layers of people disappeared, and hey, presto, I found myself jumping up a couple of levels again and I've got now a much wider brief um, responsible for a number of different sections and suits me I describe my current job as a plate split plate spinner so my job is to run around making sure if you if you probably don't remember what there used to be a thing on variety shows where a guy would have a whole bunch of plates on top of sticks and he'd spin them and make sure they didn't fall and my job is a bit like that I run around making sure that none of the plates fall over and I really like that. It suits me because mm. a bit of a butterfly. You just sort of buzz around. But you have to be careful that that's not the only thing you do. Stop plates from smashing because then you're always in crisis mode. You also have to create some time where you actually think about the fundamental things about 
I, you ask yourself the questions, why are we here in terms of a, of a unit and, and department, and where do we need to be, and create a very clear, simplistic, strategic uh, goal that people can buy into, and that gives you your success. And that brings me from 19 to 50 years of age. Hmm. And you mentioned that you learned a lot of lessons from being a bus conductor. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like, what were those lessons for you? Biggest lesson? You when to run and when to fight. <laughs> And that's a lesson that, that sticks with you through life. The answer really is that you nearly always run, right? But you have to pick your fights very, very carefully, and you win them. And could you give us an example of when that happened, for example? As a bus conductor mm-hmm. or in real life? As a bus life? conductor or in real life? Well, look, it was tough times. It was the 1980s, and the rules, the rules for, for the unions allowing people like myself to come in who were st- also who were really students working full time um, was that we had to be marked up for work after the regular uh, workers were marked up um, but that meant that we got the worst shifts so I was out into the middle of Tala in, and that was before the square was built so it was mm. it was the wild west and you're out there at 12 or 1 o'clock at night um, and lots of assaults we buses couldn't go any further and there was lots of stories that, that, that could make your hair curl but apart from a few bits of rough and tumble I, I survived it for two years uh, where other people got into trouble now mm. I think perhaps my background helped as well having gone to school where I'd gone to school and come up it, you know, it wasn't completely new to me but you really do learn to you know I think if you if if you respect people, um, and you respect and they feel respected, then you're going to get a lot less trouble. If you yeah. walk into an environment like that, as a bit of a know-all and clearly not respecting the people who you're there to serve, uh, they're they're going to let you know. Mm. And if you don't mind telling us, uh, what would you say your passion about? Like, what are your true passions? Well. I'm very passionate about being straight and honest and playing with a fair straight bat. Mm. Okay. It's it's one of the things piece of advice I'd give to anybody. If you want to keep keep life simple, then be straight and honest mm. and tell people the truth. And the thing about that's common sense and of course like everybody knows it's mm. not very common. And people just make life very complicated. And it doesn't need to be. So what makes me passionate then is just delivering really good results through really engaged, passionate teams who know why they're there. They know what they're doing. Mm. They believe in what they're doing. Then I, my job quite often is to get out of their way and let them do it. And you know, deliver, delivering results through teams like that in a very straightforward and honest environment means that the team that I have working for me um, have... The core of that team has been with me for years, and we've developed and moved on together. Mm. And they don't leave, and you know, and other people seem to just want to join us. And you know, we've got a great reputation, um, and that makes me get up in the morning. I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about my team, and I'd fight for them, and I believe they'd fight for me too. Mm. 
Yeah, I like the way you said honesty and just being radically open and honest as well because like, I feel it's much harder to hide if you're not honest. So like if you tell one lie, it's going to be another lie and so on. But if you're just honest with people, like I think that will always bring great results. So I'm glad you said that. And I'm also curious to know, what would you say is the most proudest achievement they ever had? And this may be in your personal life, in your career life, whatever, whatever comes to mind. What would you say is your most proudest achievement? Well, there's... There's things that, that have happened in work that were very good. There's things that happened in studies that were very good. I had some good results. Um, but the things that really grab you is when your children achieve. Um, and, mm. and success for your children is, is, is I think, would exceeds anything that you could do for, for yourself. So when you see your children succeed in their life, and, and move on and have success. You know, they're, they're the greatest things. They're the things that, that you remember. It could be when they win a medal uh, playing football. Yeah. It, it could be their, their, you know, their grades in school. It could be them singing a song in a school show. They're the things that you wouldn't swap for the world. And they're, for me, much more important than big projects and all sorts of other things that are promotions or any of those yeah. things that's they're they're the things that you you'll you know if somebody asks you when you're 80 odd years of age like what do you remember they're the things you're going to remember not a promotion no yeah. exactly <laughs> you're gonna forget them they all blend into each other mm, mm, mm. Mm. and if you uh, this is a long time ago now but um if you could look back and at your younger self and if you could like what did you want to do when you were younger is there anything in mind like did you ever want to be like oh I want to be an astronaut or I want to be this like what kind of dreams did you have when you were younger I, I was I was unbelievably practical um, when I was when I was 15 I had a job digging a hole for a good in, job in, 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 in this guy's garden and it was in a, a, a posh suburb of Dublin and mm. I was working for this builder and this guy was an accountant and he had two cars and a semi-detached house and I just thought this was amazing cause, and he was an accountant and I wanted to be an accountant and that's what I wanted to be and it's unbelievable to think now because now I look at accountancy and I did some I did accountancy qualification or whatever but it's only a small part of me and now my boss one a great boss that I had said to me that he said we're 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 not accountants he says the accountants are burdened with being precisely right he said our job is to be directionally correct which is far more important so I spend my life being directionally correct for my employer Mm. and I leave the accountants to being precisely right or precisely wrong so what I've learned that my job that I actually got was way more interesting than the job I thought would be interesting when I was a kid, which was accountancy. Mm. That turned out to be rather dull. And what I do now is way more interesting. But I, I could only, only assume that there's a certain aspect of accountancy that they actually enjoyed. And I'm curious to know, like, what, what, what drew you towards accountancy? Was it the practical aspect well, of things? I didn't become right? an accountant. I, mm. I did ACC. But, like, why did you want to do it? Like, why, did you, why were you interested in accountancy? I, I honestly, 
I think it was an aspiration as to what I thought an accountant would be I see, and the okay. life that they would lead. Hmm. It wasn't any knowledge of what an accountant actually does because they didn't have any knowledge mm. of what an accountant actually does. Yeah. So it was an aspiration mm. as to that's the type of life that would be something above and beyond what I had. Mm. Um, and when I look back now, it seems very petty and very silly. <laughs> but that's, it's, that's easy to scoff at now. But when I look back at, to the you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid uh, trying to get out of the, trying to, trying to get out of the school and the environment yeah, that you're yeah. in, um, then it doesn't seem petty at all. Mm. And if you could give advice to a twenty-year-old Keith, if you just had a chat with twenty-year-old Keith, what advice would you give to to yourself? A twenty, you see, all due respects. That's that's a question you're asking me because you think that at 20 I could have dictated what was going to happen from then on. But you can never know. No, but the thing is, back when I was 20, mm. it was too old. It was, it was all over. Mm. The dice had been thrown. So the person I would like to talk to is the 10-year-old Keith, mm. not the 20-year-old Keith. Because by the time I was 20, I was finished college. I was finished my second job. I was well on the road to. I was stru- at that stage. I was fighting hard to play a recovery shot. Mm. The recovery shot was that I didn't have a good education. Yeah. And I was trying to go to college at night to try and get myself into the picture for a career. And to think that I was up against guys who'd done four years full time degree. I was way behind them at that stage. So if I could talk to myself at 10 years of age and tell myself how to study and what it actually means and try to get myself out of that environment, I would have needed to go back to 10 or 12 years of age. In fact, 10 years of age, because I did my Leaving Cert, remember, at 16. So at 20, it would have been too late. Hmm. So to ten year olds if you tell them the importance focus, of focus. how to study. They, they the kids don't know how to study. So true. Um the 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 standards. What what are st- what passing exams, we used to talk about passing exams. Now kids talking about getting A's. The idea of an A I never saw an A in my life. Mm. Um so it's only when you come out of that world that I was in and then you look back and you look now the idea of points and 500 points in the leave insert and all of these things. We didn't even have points. I have no idea what points I got in the leave insert, but I'm pretty sure it was very low. Mm. Um, so your dreams and ambitions were way smaller. I remember going for a job uh, to be a postman and not even getting shortlisted because the thousands and thousands of people went for that job. I never got near it. Mm the idea of becoming a guard the idea of becoming a teacher an accountant working for a bank these were over the hill and far away I was heading off when I got the job in Aer Lingus if I hadn't got the call then within a few weeks I'd have been on a building site in London with my friend lugging bricks that's where I was was going Mm. and when Aer Lingus gave me the job I was 
absolutely blessed. My mother was on her knees saying novenas. And to get that job, there were so many people chasing so few jobs in the 80s that we had to go out to the Grand Hotel in Malahide, depending on the, 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 your surname. If it, your surname fell between letters this and this, you went on a particular day and you did open interviews with groups of, of 15 to 20 people at a time. Mm. That's, that's the only way they got through the sheer numbers. And I just got very lucky and got a start. So it just it's hard to think now, where even we've gone through a crisis. This crisis was nothing like the mobility that you have now. People can go to the States and back. Back then, people went to the States, you didn't see them. You know, people went to London, they were lucky to get back. Mm. Uh, so it's just a different world. Uh, I was very lucky to get to stay here. I was very lucky to get started. And then when I got my opportunities, I took them. Mm. And looking back on your life now, is there anyone who inspired you? Is there anyone you were influenced by? Is nope. there anyone like, oh, I want to be like this guy? My or dad. Your dad? Yeah, yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, my dad is the eldest of 10 kids. And um, his, his dad uh, was a coal man. And he had to go to England to work during the summer because there was no work for coal men. During the winter, mm. he worked from the docks. And unfortunately, my granddad got injured in, in the in in the UK in, in, in an accident and uh, survived but my dad and his next brother had to leave school and they had to go to London uh, and send back the money to, to feed the others and so my dad didn't get to complete his education then he luckily got back from London started working as a bus driver bus conductor, bus driver and a union rep and finished his career 37 years later as the divisional manager responsible for hundreds of men and millions upon millions of assets and half the city mm. and I remember coming home from school when I was learning algebra at the start and showing him an algebra equation and he looked at it and he said well, x has to be 3 and y has to be 2 I said, well, how did you work that out? He said, it's the only combination that would work. <laughs> now, he'd never seen algebra. Mm. Right? So he's very bright, but didn't have an educa- his education completed. And dad could work out all their schedules, and he'd have sheets all over the floor and work out all things wow. that back then a computer couldn't do. Mm. Um, and then my dad is extremely straight, very honest, and had a fantastic reputation. <clears throat> and he he told me so many lessons. Like he told he taught he was so calm, always so so calm. The, the one of the biggest lessons he taught me was that if you ever lose it, then you've lost. So whoever loses it in an argument has lost. And I could count on one hand the amount of times I've ever lost it mm. in, in my career. Uh, and that made, that that was a fantastic lesson to to learn, the self awareness to make sure that you keep control, and you control your responses, mm. um, and that's what I've learned from my dad. And to be hardworking, you know, you know, every day you get up, every day you do your best, you know, and it wasn't about money. And even after he's retired, he used to see buses 
we'd be driving along and he used to be calling him out being in the wrong place at the wrong time because he'd be looking at his watch saying he's not supposed to be there mm. <laughs> on a Sunday we'd be driving along and my mother would go mad because he'd be pointing out buses that and, <laughs> and he just lived his job he loved it and, that's, and, if, and if you live and love your job then it doesn't feel like a job exactly it's a hobby yeah it's just your life it's just yeah. you Mm. and now he's retired thank god still happy and healthy and he plays golf with a huge number of guys that he worked with and they all talk about buses all the time (laughs) (laughs) and they all love it and you know that's that's what i aspire to Mm. that's that's great to hear um and i'd like to segue into your career so like what does your day-to-day actually look like like when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed, like what does that day look like specifically in work? What do you do in your work? Like what does your day to day look like? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is it always different? Yeah, because that's the way I, I do it. I we did a, we did a really interesting thing with one of my teams um, a number of years ago, where we did this personality test, mm. where we all did the test together. Then we all predicted what each other's personalities would oh, be. interesting. And then we looked at the results that we got. We said what we thought it should be for ourselves. And then we got the results back mm. to see, is it right? And it was more or less everybody was able to predict each other's personalities and their own. And the great thing about it was that we, it was the first time we ever called out the different personalities and what my personality was. Mm-hmm. I'm a starter right so i'm a butterfly at work i love to start things i not i can finish if i have to finish Mm, mm, but mm. i love to surround myself with finishers and i love to surround myself with finishers who like to be with starters (laughs) and that's a fantastic combination if you can get it right because we don't just do everything the way it used to be we're all the times changing it and we finish it and we make it better and better and better and we're on it's a it's a great way to work and that's what I spend an awful lot of my time doing. I love the start starting. Things. And I don't have an awful lot of operational things that happen every single day. Mm. Practically every day is different. Right? Um, I spend an awful lot of time problem solving, dealing with people in teams and convincing and cajoling people to and trying to give direction and asking questions and listening. And I spend most of my time asking questions and listening. And what I've learned over the years is that as my teams develop, I provide less and less answers. So I would ask them, and they've, they've, they, they've realized over the years, they've, 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 um, they've copped on to what I'm doing. And they like it. Because the idea is that my job is not to give them answers. My job is to help them find answers. Mm. And now that's, that's a much stronger that's a much stronger thing to do for the team. Otherwise, I could just sit there like I'm a supervisor in a call center and just you know, solve all their problems for them. And with my experience, I probably do know, give, could give solutions to most of them. So sometimes I have to step back and not give them the solutions. What's the phrase? Uh, teach a man to fish and exactly. he'll fish forever. That's the so phrase I was going to yeah, try not yeah. to use. Exactly. Because <laughs> it sounds a little It sounds patronizing to say it of my, of my team. So I didn't use it with them. But it is a bit like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes that's a slower solution. Mm. So I would go back and I'd ask, well, have you read back on the documents? And mm. therefore, what would you think of this? And, you know, you can be a little bit cynical about it and say, I could ask them why five times in a row and they find their own answer. 
you wouldn't be as cynical as that. But if you do that a little bit of that, when they find an answer, then it sticks. You know, and we get better answers. Their answers are often better than the one I would have come up with in the first place. Mm. You know, and so that's the way I tend to work. And I love days where there's lots of those problems. I love when a problem pops up at three o'clock. When you're at that lull in the afternoon and it's a problem that pushes you on till six o'clock and suddenly you're racing to try and get finished. And you love that. Oh, absolutely. That's, that, that's the great, they're the great days. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't switch off my phone. I check my emails all the time. When I'm on holidays, I check emails all the time. When at the weekends, I check emails all the time. And I know that's not the wisdom. Wisdom says you should switch off. I don't agree with that. It doesn't work for me. I want to know if there's a problem. And if there is a problem, well, then I deal with it immediately. And if I'm sitting beside the swimming pool on holiday and there's a problem, I'll get somebody somewhere to, to get it moving. And if it's a real problem, I'll get on the phone and get it sorted. But then I sit back and relax by the pool and read my book and I know everything is fine. And then I can... I can switch off. And when I'm coming back to work, people say the first couple of days, clearing all that, I don't have any emails. Mm. My emails are gone. Mm. I'm coming straight back into work. And the first morning when I, when I come back into work, I spend going around to everybody asking how, how did it go and have a chats and get a sense for what happened that didn't come through on emails. Mm. You know, and they tell me, though, I didn't want to bother you because, but, you know. So that's, that's the way I work. It's the way, is where I operate. So I'm happy to make up my own rules. And like that, that I never heard, like not a lot of people would agree with that that you know no. you should be checking your emails consistently so I'm curious to know which I agree and um, be self-aware about it and do do what works for you because everything won't work for everyone but um, I was going to say does it stress you out like just constantly checking your emails or do you just uh, like your brain just switches onto the email fix this issue fix this problem and then you can go back to relaxing like yeah. how do you approach that? Well, that um, it doesn't stress me out either way mm. um, I don't get stressed out mm. Right, so I'm on top of of it. This is just part of being on top of it. Now, it might stress me out if I thought that there's potentially problems and they can't get me. Mm. But I'd ring them and I'd find some other way of, of making sure that things are okay. Mm. But that's not stress. That's just if people use that word stress. They overuse that word stress. Being busy, being on top of things. That's not stress. I can tell you what stress is. Stress is sitting in Crumlin Hospital with a sick child and not being able to do anything about it, right? They're the people that I respect. They're the people who are under stress. You know, uh, those horrible situations that can happen in life, that's stress. Work shouldn't be stress, right? Work is just work. You can either do it or you can't do it. If you can't do it, get help or get a different job. Or do something different if you're not enjoying it. Mm. But the idea is stress. Volume. Yes, you can have volume. And don't, not to mix volume and stress. Volume is simply too much volume. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need to say, I've got too much volume. Can somebody take some of this volume? But again, that's very different to stress. Hopefully, you'll never have a sick child. But, and, and I've never had a very sick child, thank God. But known people who have, it's, that's... That's stress, and that's something I'd never wish on anybody. And you can't do anything about it? You can't do anything about it. You'd give your own organs or limbs to yeah. if you could, but you can't. So. Hmm. 
And I'm curious to know, uh, what is your favorite part of the job? So, like, yeah, there's obviously part problems. Of the job. Problems, problems. Yeah. What kind of problems do you like to solve? All sorts. The ones, the ones that can solve with people. <coughs> there's, people problems problems. That are, there's problems that are a real pain, which are the problems where you need more money and you haven't mm. got it. Mm. And things like that. So, because ah, your, your options are limited. But, you know, problems where you bring a group together and you're looking for ideas. The ones, there's the really nice ones where you have to be creative. Hmm. So, you know, we've made funny videos to help to, to inform people. Those types, they're, they're the dream parts of the job. They're, they're, they're fantastic days when you, when you get into those. But, you know, somebody as a challenge, uh, you're not supposed to use the word problem anymore. Everything's a challenge. So those challenges are, are the really interesting ones where, the, where you require creative solutions. Hmm. But I, I love to see where we sit down with something that looked really horrible and we walk away from meeting with a plan that everybody agrees with. Mm. And I'm curious to know, um, so when there's a difficult problem to solve or a difficult, difficult challenge and you might necessarily know how to solve that problem, what is your approach? How do you deal with I these draw difficult a picture. problems? You draw a picture. Yeah. Okay. So I In would, your mind or just I, physically I have paper? Come to this, I, I have come to this with a pencil and a piece of paper to this <laughs> interview. I rarely go anywhere without a pencil and a piece of paper. And, and my team would, teams would laugh at that because I, when anytime they say they, uh, they, they need to talk to me, I know there's a problem, I come with a pencil and a piece of paper and I'll say, right, sl- slow it down, slow it down. And we draw, literally draw a picture of the problem on the, on the piece of paper. And it's amazing when you start to draw. Otherwise, it's all, it can be all a bit sort of hype and emotion and a little bit of panic maybe, and it's all up in the air. You draw, bring, put it down as a picture on, on a piece of paper, and we all agree, is that it? And like a, a schematic or graph. Yeah. And you say, is that the problem? Right. Well, then, now we know what the problem is. Mm. What's the solution? Mm. Right. What can we do? Mm. Right. Or what can't we do? Right. And, and it's amazing if you just it seems to steady the ship right everybody starts looking at the whole whole table can start looking at one pencil drawing and you build a whole plan around one little pencil drawing and and that's that's if you ask like what my role often is it's that it's sort of like to be the mast in the middle and you just write okay that's the problem so if anybody's coming in blaming somebody else who didn't do something all that stuff stays outside that's that's not what we're or in, we're in solution mode, identify the problem, identify the fix. Afterwards, we can loop back and see, is there a way of stopping this from happening in the future? Mm. But that's not, that's not the first thing you do. Mm. The first thing you do is stop the bleed and then heal the patient. I really like that approach because like often, um, like I know for myself, like if there's a problem I want to solve, like it helps to get it down on paper so you can actually see what it is and then it's much easier to draw it out you know come up with a solution yeah. which is think you're, you're the approach yeah. you're don't thinking. get caught in the detail so okay. some people get caught in the absolute detail yeah. get caught in the absolute detail uh, of, of it so you know we have to politely try and get through that and, mm. and sometimes they need to air that that's okay mm. but let's focus it right down to the core core problem and then you get a core core solution then you find that you need phases two three four and five that mop up all the details mm. that's fine you can do that mm. and also like to any job there's always parts that you don't necessarily enjoy 
Like I feel like that's the case in yeah. e- everywhere. Paperwork and expenses. That's what you don't and like. Performance okay. reviews. Mm. I hate giving performance reviews, and I hate, uh, and I hate doing paperwork, and I hate doing my expenses. Okay, so there's a pattern here. Yeah. I don't see the point in giving performance reviews to my team. I talk to them all day, every day. If there's a problem, they know. They don't have to wait till the performance review. <laughs> so our performance reviews probably don't follow the. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, the typical the, procedure. The typical procedure, yeah. or, or sometimes any procedure. Mm. <laughs> and, and, um, and we all respect that. And so, you know, we, we, we talk, our job, it's like, can you imagine a football team playing together all season long and then deciding, you know, twice a year that we're going to talk to each other? <laughs> what do you do? I love to play football. What do you do? What, what do the really good footballers do all through the game? They talk all the time. And I play football twice a week now, even though I'm 50 years of age. And my legs are gone, but my brain isn't. So I stand at the back and I say, take a step to the left, take a step back. take a, And, and I'm, I talk to her through the whole game. And, and that's what you do. And it's all those tiny, tiny little tweaks and seeing the big picture. And it's very same in work. Yeah, and and you don't you don't at the end of the game or halfway through the game decide to talk about how it's going. Mm. <laughs> you talk all the way through, yeah. and that's how you win the game. And it's the same with work. Mm. And it's the same with performance. There should be no surprises. If somebody is having a problem with performance, then they they, they know themselves first of all, and you know it should be instant. Mm. And. In your opinion, what is a good leader? Well, good leader is somebody who helps work out what the f- what the purpose is. In other words, why are we here? So right. clear vision. Absolute clear vision as to why we're here. Mm. Then the leader will talk to people and say, once we get agreement and everybody's on board, that is it. That doesn't change. Then you need to very, very honestly assess, well, where are we at the moment? Right? And people have to be honest. And then you say, well, where should we be? What should that look like? That could be a digital strategy. It could mm. be we need to outsource something. It could be whatever it needs to be. Mm. You then you very clearly as a group come up with three or four things that you need to do to get to, from point A to point B. Now, if you go back to the theory books, you'll have all sorts of vision statements. You're, you, you were using those words yourself. Then you'd have strategy. And then you'd have, mm. you know, I mean, like, yeah, you can, go, you can go into all the theory of it. It's, it's common sense. So the first question I would ask any group that I ask is, I ask them, why are we here? What's the purpose? I asked them, who is our customer? And I don't come bluntly in day one. And, I ask them. and then I listen, right? That's the difference. You have to listen, right? Who's our customer? And I've taken over groups where I've asked everybody individually who's our customer. When I'm just chatting to them in, in conversation. Mm. And I've got all sorts of different answers. And some people say, we don't have a customer. Mm. So then you need to establish who your customer is because if you don't have a customer, really, I don't think anybody doesn't have a customer. And then you say, well, why are we here? And how are we doing? And how do we need to do? And what do we need to do to change? Mm. And 
you know, that type of honesty, that's what a, that's what a leader can bring. And then after that, if you've got the right people, quite often your job is to get out of the way, right? And let them do it, and then be there to support and help and guide, right? But, and another important thing for a leader is when things go well, you take a step back. And when things go wrong, you take a step forward, right? So your job is to take responsibility and protect your team because your team will watch. And if you're the type of leader that takes a step back when things go wrong, you might get away with it that time and throw a couple of people under the bus and save your own skin. You will never get away with it a second time because people will see, the people who didn't go under the bus will see it. 100%, yeah. You will never get away with that trick again. And so it better have been worth it because you've only got, you only get to do that once, mm. right? amazing if you take one for the team that wasn't your doing everybody knows but that's your job right in the long run that's where that's where you'll find that you, you, you build loyalty and you build a team that's with you for the long haul and there, and that's when you that's when you achieve real results you know they're the teams that they're the teams that are playing like a football team needs to play they're the teams that win leagues and they revert back to football the, the guys that the guys that'll hurt for each other, they're the they're the teams that win matches. You know, it's it, it's impossible to say what wins matches quite often. Why did one team win two? Score a goal in the final minute. What, why was it that team? Mm. Right. It's it's quite often something something magical about team spirit, and it's not about survey results or any of these these things. You know, it's it's far more genuine than that. It's much more honest than that. Mm. And you've worked with you're you've been in leadership position for a good a while for a good while now, and I'm, I assume you worked with a lot of um, leaders in the past. What would you say is the advice that these uh, these people give that you think is wrong? Like you're like, why are you saying that? Like, what is the worst piece of advice that you often hear within your industry? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, there's 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 a lot of things I think that that. Uh, collective wisdoms that everybody agrees are right I don't necessarily agree are right so one of them is that I fundamentally believe in diversity right not because it's a hot cool sexy topic Mm. right because mathematically in my brain I can justify it so I'm a trained investor right I know how to calculate the risk of a portfolio of investments. It's very simple. It's the weighted uh, risk of each element of the portfolio, right, plus the covariance between the various elements in the portfolio. So that's simple, right? And I can give you, write down for you the mathematical formula for that. Mm. Okay? That's simple. And that's, I can mathematically, scientifically prove that is the risk within a portfolio. Now, think about the decisions that a group makes as a portfolio of investments, right? The risk of those decisions is the weight of the decision makers. So one person might be more dominant than the other. So you'd apply what so their their decision has more influence on the overall decision. So it's the weight of each decision maker's decision and the risk that comes with their decision. That's fine. You add those all up, but you're missing a bit. The bit that you're missing is the covariance between their decisions. 
right? Just like a portfolio, you have to add on that covariance between their decisions. And like investments, what we've realized when we're looking at correlation and assets, we realize that assets look like, in peacetime, assets can look like they're uncorrelated. So they may, one, one asset, when one asset falls, the other one might rise, and it looks like if you hold both assets, you're going to have a nice steady ride. I think decisions can be a bit like that too. So you can look like you have people who, in peacetime, are all bouncing around and have a nice balanced approach and they, they counter off each other. But when stress time comes, mm-hmm. and you're in a, what we call a left tail event in an investment world, in the investment world, all, almost all assets correlated to one. So they all went the same direction at the same time. Very few asset classes didn't. And the same thing happens with decisions. Right? And the problem then is when the real stress is on, when the crisis hits, right, and you suddenly have 90-odd percent of decision makers going for the same direction, that's when you need true diversification or lack of correlation, right, to hold back and stand out from the group and say, hang on, not sure, I'm not going to panic, is that the right decision, right? Mm-hmm. And so diversity, that's what, for me, in the way I think, mathematically, that's what diversity can bring. It can, it can, it can apply true stability to your decisions, and it can save you. In the, it doesn't matter. You don't need it necessarily in the really good times, right? Because there's no crisis. Mm. It, you, you'll need it when the crisis hits. Mm. So then, how do you get diversity? And people talk about... See, problem with this is that people put an overemphasis on the things that they can measure and people when they're looking at analyzing things they tend to ignore things that can't be measured and they suddenly we somehow try to pretend that those things don't matter Mm. because we can't measure them Mm. so in diversity the things that we can measure are gender age um, uh, uh, birthplace things things that are factual things yeah and we say that that's diversity and of course we're only looking at a tiny amount of things that actually lead to diversity there are so many other things diversity is about diversity of thinking it's not about diversity of gender or diversity of age you could have people who are different genders who think the same i could have a young person and an old person who think the same Mm. i could have people from different parts of the globe who think the same, who have different color skin, who think the same. That doesn't guarantee that they'll think differently. Yeah. So really what makes them think differently is much harder to measure. It can, it's their values. It's their experience. It's their life, their personality. And those things are extraordinarily difficult to measure. And therefore, somehow we seem to just ignore them. And we ignore the elephant in the room. And my concern is that we think we have diversity. And when the pressure comes on, we'll suddenly realize that we don't have diversity at all. So I'll give you an example. I think social diversity. Right? You can tell from my accent that I was born and live in Dublin. Right? And I work in a financial industry. Mm. 
which is dominated by partic- people from a particular social class, mm. an awful lot of whom would have gone to certain parts of the city and certain types of schools, right? Not my school, <laughs> right? And I would really question if they were all different genders and different ages and different different things, but they're all going to think the same because they have the same values, right? They've, they've been made from the same ingredients. Mm. And I've questioned with my employer, and they reacted very positively to the questioning. I said that I left school 34 years ago, right? And since then, I've been in the airline business and the banking business. And I've never met a single person that I went to school with. And my school is walking distance from where we're sitting today. And I've never met a single person in 34 years that I went to school with. That's crazy. Okay. So, how diverse are we? And then, of course, I was asked, well, what's the solution? Because we love short-term solutions. Mm. And the answer is not what you want to hear. Because... The answer is not, well, let's just go and get more of those people. Because guess what? They don't exist. You need, this is, comes back to your very first question about the 20-year-old. You need to go back to them when they're 10. And you need to make the changes there. You need to create them. You need, they, they, there's no point in picking them at 20 years of age if they haven't got the education and they're not going to succeed. And then they'll just end up at the low ends of the industry. They won't get to the top. So the solutions to diversity are not, they're not the solutions that, that are quick and easy. They'll take at least 10 years if you act immediately. They'll take at least, at least 10 years to solve. But they can solve. So my own personal crusade, you're, you're, you're aware of some of it, which is that I've been fundraising for my old school. And I've gone back there and tried to raise funds for them. Um, just it's dropping the ocean stuff. But what it has actually done is it's created a bit of a story. And the university that I'm associated with has got interested. And the professor there has got interested. And the bank that I work for has got interested. And it just, if I can spark some interest there, then we can start to slowly slowly to get interested in, in change and some of the good people that work in those places but it's it's not an easy answer and so your question was what do I disagree with essentially what what wisdoms out there you know what are, what do, that people think that I don't agree with that's one I think th- I think there seems to be a feeling that diversity can be solved by quotas immediately and all these sort of things I don't agree with that unfortunately I think diversity is extremely important but unfortunately the answer is a much harder work than that that's too simplistic an answer mm. that's, that's the biggest <coughs> thing you disagree with okay and when you feel stressed uh, like I know you said you don't you don't <laughs> feel stressed or at all but like I'm sure you do at some stage or maybe oh, you don't okay. I'm not the, sure when I feel stressed right but how do you deal with that yeah um I, I hope that George Hal- Hamilton stops talking when Ireland are 1-0 <laughs> up and there's five minutes to go 
and he starts talking about this, this being another historic day for Irish football. <laughs> that stresses me. I That's when I turn the television down to mute, and that's when I have to walk out of the room and I can't look. I've That's happened to me in a number of occasions. <laughs> and, and sometimes, the, the amount of times Ireland have conceded a goal in the final few minutes, <laughs> that's stress, but it's obviously not real stress. But that's that's hard to watch so well then what is your thinking like because like I, I think that's a good position to be in that you don't you, you know you the never real things feel in stress, life, no. but how do you what's like your what's your thinking behind this like why why do you not feel stressed why do you not feel overwhelmed I'm well what's the worst thing that can happen you ask yourself that question well well but what is the worst thing that can happen that's why the example I gave to you was the person who were dependent that I think would feel stressed is the person sitting in Crumlin Hospital with a sick child. Because what's the worst thing that can happen there, mm. right? It's yeah. something pretty horrible, mm. right? So we've got a problem in work, right? So what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. Well, the worst thing that can happen is we lose our jobs, mm. right? So a lot of people are impacted, but nobody's dead, right? And actually, the reality is you're, you're rarely ever in that situation that you actually lose your jobs right I don't want to be a pretty bad one or a series of bad ones right so maybe your performance review takes a dip well you know what you live and learn mm. you made you've made mistakes then if that's the case and you learn from them you won't make them again so you know keep things in perspective okay um stress people people issues can can really cause people stress and um you know, dealing with people issues. I, I, I would have heard a lot of people say that, that, you know, as we move on, they really want to stop dealing with people issues. Um, and, and I can understand that. That's, they're the, you know, if you think, you know, that it's getting personal or there's a problem, and, and they're the things you could be thinking about at night, like, and how would you say that? And how would you, if you feel that you've done something wrong that's hurt somebody's feelings and you're, you're not doing it the right way. Mm. Yeah. But again, it's still not really stressed. In, in when you're a leader, it's part of the job. It comes with it, right? Yeah, if you if you if you don't want this, then find something else to do. And you know, there's what, what do you call? It's like when, or exams is another stress one. So I've just gone through. I I was twenty years since I'd been in college, and I decided to go back and do my masters. Yeah. And I decided to go back and do my masters. And people in the in the class were asking who were 20 odd years uh, younger than me I was going why are you here are you you know are you trying to do something in your career or something I said no no I'm here I said because I want to see I want that why would you put yourself through the stress of exams and these are tough exams I didn't didn't feel that way and when I spoke to the professor afterwards a year later and uh he said, well, you must be relieved to be finished. I said, no, I am absolutely not. I said, I'd love to be back there now on a no Saturday way. morning. <laughs> and I'd love, and he said, and now I'm lecturing part of the course. So I am back there on a Saturday morning. And I tutored students for three years in grinds. While I was a first year, in conjunction with, in conjunction with the university, I was tutoring other first years. And then when I was a second year, I was tutoring first years and second years. Hmm. Then I was finished and I was tutoring first years and second years. And now I'm going to go back and teach one of the modules. And I can tell you, you wouldn't do it for the money. You, you have to do it because it's just... You, you like you, it. You, 
feel you feel great about it now you know so I, that's stress I think stress if you let it into your life maybe but just don't let it in take yeah. a different attitude I like that approach a big big perspective and are you a reader <coughs> I'm not uh, I'm not a very techie person hence the pencil and the paper but my reading has gone a little bit more techy. So I tend to, I'm, I'm reading articles on LinkedIn and I'm reading articles and I, I'm, I, I do like to read the newspaper, mm-hmm. um, especially at the weekends. So I okay. do like to slow down and, and get a quality read. And I do tend to keep up with the news uh, um, reading it on, on my phone. I'm reading a book at the moment uh, and I tend to read two or three or four books together and read yeah, bits. Yeah, if you could give us a few books that yeah, have but I, 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 I tend to read bits here okay, and there. Okay, okay. And, and perhaps not finish them and touch on them bits. So I love books that you can pick up and drop, such as there was a book about the 100 inv- inventions that changed the world. Hmm. I thought that was fantastic. Um, and and I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff, so I read a lot of history and I travel uh, to, to try and back that up as well. They're very interested in history. But so the book, but the book I'm I'm reading right at this moment, it's beside the bed, is uh, Matt Williams' um, book on on Michael O'Leary. Um, having spent eighteen years in, in the airline business, I was fascinated because some of the things that are in the book I was involved in, and really? um, oh. yeah, so it was very interesting. I was there, and uh, so. That's a, fanta- a fascinating book for me, and I, and I like reading about Michael O'Leary. Uh, probably one of the best bosses I ever had was Willie Walsh, and they were very similar characters. They had extraordinary clarity of thought. They didn't care what people thought about them. They had they were so focused. It was it was a pleasure to work with with Willie Walsh because you knew exactly what he'd do, and the same thing with Michael O'Leary. So I, I, I would have had huge respect for Michael O'Leary and still have. Um, I don't agree with him, but that's a different thing to respect him. Um, and he's made mistakes. Uh, but the thing, what I do, the thing I like most about Michael O'Leary is his clarity of thought. The next thing I like about Michael O'Leary is that he was willing to change. And he has changed. And over, if you look, people think he, he's only he's you know just a, a one shot merchant. But if you look at the detail of 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 his career um, and the things he's done, he's taken he's stolen the best best from every stolen the best ideas from everywhere and pieced them together and built something from nothing. So I'm fascinated by that story, and that's that's what I'm reading at the moment. Is there any other books that come across your mind? Well, I read a lot of books about World War Two. So, so history, history. You so like history. Be, yeah, be very interested in 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 history, um, and yeah. So then I, so I'm just back from Crete, and where I did a tour of the 1941 um, battle for Crete between the Allies and the and the Germans, um, and um, I did a tour all on that. Um, previous year, I did a tour all around south of Spain all about the history of the Moors so I was very interested in the history of, mm. very interested in the history of the Moors in Spain mm. so went around Ronda and Cordoba and Granada and I read all about that and I went and visited and went to the Alhambra Palace and the Mosquito and um, 
also is interested in the Inquisition and so very just just took a just took an interest in Spanish history of it, uh, around that time. Um, but that's that's what I'd be interested in, and, and a lot of the reading I do would be around various various wars. I think there's a huge connection between wars and business, and lots and lots of people say this. But I'm interested in the strategy, and, and I'm very interested in, if I was there, what would I have done? With the information that's available to them at that time, would I have done the same thing? And I ask myself, so in April, I stood on the hill where the Allied commanders stood, and I looked out at the beaches in Crete, um, at, at Hania, and we had the maps up and I had a personal guide and we spent the whole day talking about this. Mm. And we we looked at the maps as to what, what the Allied commanders knew and the decisions they made and the mistakes they made and talked about what they could have done. It's very easy to say now what they could have done differently and how they wouldn't, they wouldn't have lost the battle. And just uh, asking yourself honestly, would you have made the same decisions? And that's fascinating for me. And there's the connection to, you know, life and business and strategy. And I'd like to touch on Willie Walsh. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Willie Walsh is the CEO of the International Airlines Group. And he's also served as the CEO of Aer Lingus and British Airways. Um, I'm curious to know, what uh, lessons did you learn from uh, Willie Walsh? Well, Willie... Willie came up through through the airline and he was um, an engineer and then he was a very single-minded individual and then they put him in charge of a small little charter airline um, down in the, the, I think it was down in the Canaries and he was only a short time there and he knocked it into shape very quickly and then he got lucky in terms that a gap came available and he got the job shortly after 9-11 um, for Arlingus. But the unfortunate thing for Willie was that the political ownership of the company wasn't ready for Willie. He, he wanted to run the company like a private company, a truly private company, and drive it straight into, into private ownership. Uh, at that time, it was owned by the government, and that wasn't going to sit with his political masters. So his tenure ended abruptly, but he he took no nonsense. He had an extremely clear view as to what it was we were going to do. Up to then, Erlingus it flittered around. It didn't quite know. It was it was it a, it used to call itself a full service airline. Then it realised it had to compete on costs with Ryanair. Then it ended up with a high cost service with low cost fares. That's a disaster. It didn't know what it wants to be, and it it didn't really want to take the pain of mm. becoming a low cost operator and all the changes that would come with that. You know, Willie cut through all of that. So I learned one of the biggest lessons, and I've I've quoted it about change management from Willie Walsh. Now, I paraphrased, I've thought about this numerous times since, and these aren't, this isn't the way Willie necessarily describe it, but it's my observation of what he did. Mm. It's that if you want to make real organizational change, you can't change 10% of the organization. If you do, it'll, it'll spring back to what it was before. You've got to change 90%. If you change, if you, there comes a point 
where if you change it so much that it can't spring back. Mm. And in Willie's case, that was a fundamental change in the distribution of the product, the sales distribution of the product, which was he decided we're going to stop paying commission to travel agents. We're going to do away with our travel agent shops and we're going to push people to the web offering. And we're going to get our web offering up from what it was, something like in the teens, and we're going to get it up to what it is today. That meant we had a whole department with hundreds of people who had red fingers from counting these tickets, manual paper tickets. We had an IT department, that's, they were called a revenue department, and a whole building for them. We had an IT department that serviced them. We had a HR department that serviced them and the IT department who were servicing them. Mm. We had a catering department that fed them. We had buildings, people. We had everything feeding us, nothing to do with selling tickets. He made one major change, which was a strategic change to go, say, with web offering. And that cut out so much that just it was, a, it was the 90% change that you could never spring back. And all of those layers were taken out. And that was the big change to the cost base that allowed them to start competing. And the fares started to tumble down, down, down. And you could really start moving on to, to what the... And if they hadn't have done that, the airline wouldn't have survived. As many other airlines either survived purely because of state support or else they didn't survive. And Aer Lingus wouldn't have been here today if it hadn't have made those major, major changes. They were very painful to be in the middle of. But I saw what he was doing. I really respected what he did. And that lesson about how to make change and to ha- that strategic change, that how radical it needs to be, is a lesson I've taken with me in my career. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's powerful. And if you look back, like, what would you say is your most best or most worthwhile investment that you ever made? My pension. Your pension. <laughs> Pensions, they're fantastic long-term investments. So, look, at when, you're, when that, you're, you're asking somebody about an investment, the first thing you always ask them when somebody wants to talk to you about investments is you say, when do you need your money back? Mm. Right? And people ask me about investing in anything I'd say when do you need your money back what's the purpose of the investment and it's very simple if you don't need your money back until you're retired invest in your pension diversification I spoke about the power of diversification earlier on right diversification is the only free lunch in town okay I can have two investments you're looking at me puzzled so I can have two investments that both have a volatility um, of say 10% Right. and an expected return of 5%. So I can invest in one of them and have a volatility of 10% and an expected return of 5%. But then I can invest in 10 of those, and if the if the returns for all of those are uncorrelated, then I can end up with an expected return of 10%, but a volatility of less than 5%. Mm. So there's no free lunches in, in this world in investment. Anybody who tries to sell you a sure thing or something that sounds too good to be true, it is. But diversification is one exception, right? You, if you diversify your investments, then you can achieve the same return with slightly less volatility along the way. And pensions, long-term investments, can al- allow you to achieve that as long as you uh, invest in a diversified portfolio, very diversified portfolio for the long term and don't play with it and take proper advice. So, best investment ever was my pension. Guess what my part of 
guess guess what guess what my job is for many years of course it was to run occupational pension schemes so of course i would say that but it is and then of course you take advantage of the tax reliefs going in uh, and the capital gains tax on your investment growth and the structure is there to encourage long-term investing if you want short-term investments fine very hard to find them at the moment because of the interest rate environment we're in mm. but the invest best investment i've ever made was a long steady long-term gradually increasing investment into my pension interesting okay and what advice would you give to a smart driven college student who is just about to graduate and is going to enter the real world uh, think about playing football and not jogging playing football and not jogging what do you mean by that so I got a piece of advice years and years and years ago and I was in the IMI and I was thinking about doing some more studying and one of the senior people there asked me, he said, how do you like to keep fit? And I said, I like to play football. Mm-hmm. He said, well, how does it feel you're playing football? I said, I could play football all day till I collapse. I love football. He says, great. What do you think about jogging? And what do you hate doing? What way do you hate keeping fit? I said, oh, on a treadmill in a gym. I said, that would kill me. And he said, how does that feel? I said, well, after five minutes, I'm looking at my watch and it just absolutely kills me. He said, well, what you need to do is you need to find whatever you're going to study, it needs to feel for you like the way you feel about playing football. And my advice to any young person coming out of college is find what it is that feels for you like playing football feels for me in terms of getting fit. If you can find what that thing is for you, honestly, that's the thing to do. And then be the absolute best there is at it. And in terms of money, money will follow. If you're the best at doing... Whatever. Anything. Yeah. You'll have enough money, right? If you go the other way around and chase the money, then you'll be on a treadmill watching your watch your whole life. I like that. So you're saying find what it is that drives you, what puts you on fire. Absolutely. And do that. And, and, and what would you say like uh, how would you, how would you go about doing that like because it's not easy to do that it's okay. not easy to do well, that once you finish college well why isn't it easy because you don't know you never tried you're you're so, so try young. a few things try so few you don't things. need the solution and this isn't this isn't a sprint yeah this is a marathon right so you try a few things don't mm. stick at one thing for too long don't stick too short either because you want to show a bit of commitment mm. but when you've done a couple of things or and don't wait till you're finished college to start trying out work. Right. One of the things with my own kids is to find work early. Right? So my son's just about to finish college. He's three years he's been working. And and he's he's had two different employers. Um and he's never stopped working. And he's learned more from that work than he will from college. But he knows now what work is. Mm. And so, so work should not start after college. It should, it should be all the way through during college. Um, and then ask yourself the simple question, right? Is what was the best thing you did? When were you absolutely at your best? What was that day? Right? And then when you think about that, well, how did you feel that day? Mm. What was it, right? And can you do more of that? 
Is there a way of having that day all the time? That's the thing. And for some people, that might be, you know, the day we won an award and we did this. And then why? What was it about it? Was it, you know, you led a team, you did something? Well, that's what, that's where, that's where you're looking for your passion. Mm. For, for me, it was actually one of the worst times when I had to deliver really bad news to the whole organization. And I traveled around on my own and told most of the staff face mm. to face. And I realized that I was good at this because I was honest and straightforward and people accepted and and I knew my I, I realized that my instincts were good. My people instincts were good and my instincts for delivering change and explaining things were good. And I realized actually that's what I need to do. Right? And whatever that is for you, right? Ask yourself and then two years later ask yourself that question again. And always strive to find what is that? What was that thing that? Because if you're feeling that good about it, right, mm. you'll be great at it. Yeah. And then, fantastic jobs will find you, money, fame, or fortune. I'll find you, if that's what you want. I like that. Be very careful with money. You know, there's actually surprisingly little money that you actually need. The rest of it just tends to stack up and pass on to somebody else. Right, um, you know, uh, a very rich guy I once knew um, gave me that advice, and he said, "He said, kid, you can only sleep on one bed at a time. The rest of it's a waste." You know, and it's easy to say, right? But there is a, there is truth in that. Don't don't get fixated by that. So that's what I would say to him. Yeah. No. That's that's good advice. And this is the final question for you. So looking back on your career, which you had a quite a quite a diverse and long career, uh what are the three biggest lessons that you learned from your career, from your life as a whole that you could perhaps share with the listeners? You want three. Three lessons. No. You can't afford three. I'll give you one. Give us one lesson then. <laughs> we'll take that. <laughs> Be honest and straightforward with people. Okay. Right? If you're honest and straightforward with people, you build a reputation for being honest and straightforward with people. And when you need to do deals and when you need to deliver change, that'll all come back to you in spades and people will understand. And you'll be able to deliver things that people other people can't deliver. Mm. Right? You'll sleep better. You'll be happier. Right? And if you're honest and straightforward and you're known for playing with a straight bat, you'll live a much longer and happier life. So that's your number one advice. My number one. I like it. Okay. Thank you so much. And before you finish up, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Anything at all like you'd like to mention or whatever? No, just make sure you save for your pension. <laughs> save for your pension. <laughs> uh, Keith, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much Thank for coming on. Much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, it'd be pretty cool if you shared it with your friends or anyone else who you think would benefit from it. You can find all the show notes by going to the website chasingpassion.e. That is chasingpassion.e. Thank you for listening today and I hope you enjoyed the episode.